Jesus speaks seven times from the cross, right at or just prior to the moment of his death. And we will soon read, as is our tradition, all seven of those words. It's a way of allowing ourselves to be drawn into the mystery of the Lord's death. It's a way to sense the reality of it, the agony, the darkness, the the fear and trembling. But also, also to taste and see the infinite love which is stronger than death. The love which would make such an offering freely and for our sakes. Now, if we ask, why? Why does Jesus, the Son of God, obey unto this horrid death? Why does he make the sacrifice? I mean, there are a number of things we could say. The cross is a multifaceted mystery, like a diamond. Its brilliance needs to be viewed from many angles. But tonight, I want to suggest that when we see the cross, we should think of the radical hospitality of God. The radical hospitality of God. Now, that may strike some as surprising. But hospitality was a crucial and a cherished practice in the early Christian church and remains so or should remain so today. The word for hospitality, philoxenia, literally means love of strangers, a love of the other. It is the opposite of xenophobia, fear or suspicion or worse, a hatred of the other. Philozenia, love of the other. And as Christians, we are urged to practice it. Right? With those in, with those passing through the church, and even, as seen most starkly in the parable of the Good Samaritan, with those outside the church. And there's a deep logic to this. Practice hospitality. It's not just a random command added to a list of obligations. Do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Practice hospitality. In the gospel, to probe the logic a little bit, in the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus' cross, we see a radical and unspeakably generous hospitality on display. Now, the cross, while it is central, it is indispensable, it is infinitely precious to us, it is not an end. It's a means to an end. And that end is that God might make us his friends, that he might host us, 
that he might invite us into his house. Indeed, that he might make us into his house, his dwelling place. Hospitality, then, is deeply embedded in the structure and the purpose of the gospel. The gospel of the cross is an invitation for us, undeserving and estranged though we are, to come home to God. That we might know him and love him and that he might know and love us. That he might supply us with gifts. That he might spread a feast before us, a bountiful feast of his word and the sacraments. Gracing us with his own personal presence through the spirit. In short then, in the gospel, God is practicing costly hospitality toward us that he might welcome us as children into communion, into the delightful feast that is to be the Christian life. And what I want to suggest to you, perhaps surprisingly, is that that hospitality is on vivid display in all of its depths in Jesus' speech as he is in agony, gasping for breath, dying. So I want to briefly look at this theme as we hear Jesus in each of the seven last words from the cross. In the first word, we have this astonishing sentiment, really, perhaps the most shocking of them all, from the crucified one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That they do not know does not mean that they're not liable for what they've done. It does mean they're ignorant of the horrific nature of the crime and who it is that they're executing. But notice what's happening here. On the very basis, on the very basis of the crucifixion he is undergoing, on the very ground of the unjust agony and bloodshed they have inflicted on him, on that ground he prays for the Father to pardon them. Because of what they have done in putting him to death, he prays for their forgiveness. This is unspeakably costly obedience to his own teaching where he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is divine hospitality for the Jews who rejected him and condemned him and handed him over. This is hospitality for the Romans who are nailing his hands and feet with their mocking, callous hatred. This is hospitality for the crowds who jeer and approve or stand and stare and are indifferent. And this is hospitality for you and me, whose sins fastened him there. 
This is like providing hospitality in the ashes for the people who just burned your house down. At a time when breathing, breathing is a monumental effort, Jesus does not ask for assistance for himself. He pleads for the stranger, for the other, for his mortal enemies. He puts their needs above his own and he seeks to make them his killers. Pardoned, reconciled friends. And the other words from the cross continue to display this same kind of welcoming mercy. The second word comes as Jesus is hanging between two criminals. The one's railing at him. The second criminal rebukes the first one. The second one recognizes his own guilt and somehow recognizes Jesus' innocence. The second criminal, the famous thief on the cross, then asks Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remarkably, in Jesus' shredded flesh, this man sees a king. And a king with a domain, a king with a kingdom. I mean, Pilate, despite nailing the sign which said, this is the king of the Jews, did not see this. The Jewish leaders didn't see it. The disciples don't see it. No one but this thief sees royalty on this figure in the middle of the three crosses. And there is so already in Jesus' is suffering this kind of death, a solidarity, a kind of union, a kind of gruesome bond in blood with this man and is about to become a bond in the blood of the new covenant. So the dying criminal makes his plea. Jesus is a king and he desperately hopes he's a king who will remember him and welcome him. He's praying for divine hospitality. And Jesus replies with more than a welcome. He gives a promise. He gives the thief a promise not only of admittance, but of admittance with Jesus. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me. In paradise. That criminal, that's Jesus' guest to the party. It's a pledge of immediate hospitality. Today you will be with me. Now, I think we can say there's never a perfect time to exercise hospitality. There's never a great time. Jesus, it would appear, is in the most preposterous position to be playing host. Yet there is no delay. There's no, you know, wait till I'm raised or I come into my future kingdom. From the abyss of his misery, 
And this is the infinite depth of the cross, right? From the abyss of his misery, there arises the greater, deeper abyss of God's mercy. Today, you will be with me. Right? There it is in its simplest form. You will be with me. That communion is what the cross is for. That hospitality, that is the essence, the goal, the end of Jesus' passion, to welcome the other, here the convicted criminal, to be with him in paradise. Paradise, the image tells us that this is a communion. It's an Edenic image, right? It goes back to the garden. It tells us this is a communion which will involve ultimately the restoration and the renewal of all things. God is making a new home, a new eternal dwelling. Notice these housing words in the New Testament. A new home, a new dwelling where he will practice face-to-face -face hospitality, even with undeserving criminals who see in his solidarity with them, who see a royal host. The third word from John's gospel has a dying Jesus turn to his grieving mother and to John, his disciple, both of whom are near the bloody scene, right? Near enough to hear a gasping, groaning Jesus speak. And he says to his mother, apparently widowed already, in her late 40s, maybe her early 50s. Behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. And from that time on, the text tells us, John took her into his home. So here is hospitality again of the most immediate, practical, worldly kind. Atoning for the sins of the world seeking pardon for his killers, welcoming a criminal into his kingdom, a kingdom secured by his own disfigured body in this most beautiful scene. Jesus provides this simple act of charity and secures hospitality for his mother. He provides for her a place place of refuge and consolation and safety in the midst of her own grief and loss. And he provides her as well, the highly esteemed one, as a gift to John so that there might be friendship and mutual care. The fourth word from Mark's gospel is Jesus' cry of dereliction. His cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here again, there is solidarity. There's full identification with us. Where? In our God forsakenness. In our desolation. In our abandonment in our own bitter experience of being cut off from God, in our own sense of rejection and hopelessness and curse. 
in our own deep feeling that God has somehow turned his face away from us. Here, nailed and immobile, God is running after us. Enemies who shun and flee the divine hospitality. This is God entering our very darkness. Our bitter unbelief. Our bitter, unbelieving, atheistic questions to restore us to the Father's house. Again, the hospitality on display here is one of infinite cost. Jesus is cut off, abandoned, rejected, estranged, excluded. That you might be brought near, received, reconciled, embraced, and included. The fifth word. Here Jesus, knowing his mission is fulfilled, says, I thirst. Of course, he would be desperately thirsty. Here he takes on the stance of one who needs hospitality. One who becomes vulnerable and asks for simple human kindness. He provides others the opportunity, as we are provided in the poor and the naked and the imprisoned. He provides an opportunity for them to show him hospitality. It's a remarkable act of humility. The one who spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well and called himself the giver of living water now becomes the parched, thirsty stranger, the needy outsider himself. And he receives not real aid or compassion. He receives sour wine in what is mostly an act of scorn. So the one who turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana is refused even the common courtesy of a drink that would relieve his dying thirst. He who needed our hospitality and our welcome becomes the recipient of our rejection. You know what he houses here as our host? He houses your scorn. And he houses your rejection that he might give us living water, that he might quench our thirst in the house of his Father. The sixth word is, it is finished. His obedience, his suffering, the full scope of his exacting mission, all of that is now over. This is a cry of triumphant divine hospitality. Here's my paraphrase of it. The work of restoring communion, of gathering prodigals back to the Father's house, of providing everlasting hospitality for the banished children of Adam, that work, it's finished. And it's because of those words, that being finished, done, that all is now ready. The table is now set. The church invites all to the banquet to the feast of fellowship with God. It is finished, is an invitation. Everything is complete and ready for you to come home to God. Finally, 
the seventh word. From Luke's gospel, crying out with a loud voice, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's from Psalm 31, where the psalmist is seeking shelter and refuge in God. Here, it is a great cry of reunion. Jesus is actively returning to his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Actively heading for the reunion. Returning to the Father. And it comes as the veil or the curtain of the temple is torn. Demonstrating that access to God. Free access is now open to all. Not just a select few. Not just the priests. The hour for strangers to come home has arrived. And Jesus, get this, the God-forsaken one in our flesh is the first to arrive home. He does have a guest with him, a thief. And his act of returning in the seventh word is witnessed by another enemy, a Roman soldier who, it turns out, is converted, gathered up into the hospitality that gushes out of the bottom of Jesus' despair. That's the remarkable thing about the cross. Hospitality gushes out of the bottom of the despair. The abyss of its misery leads to the deeper abyss of God's mercy. So this soldier praises God as he watches the scene and he declares Jesus' innocence. And in Matthew and Mark, we're told that this soldier says, surely this was the Son of God. It's a confession of faith. So he, this hard-bitten Roman soldier, complicit in and guilty of murder, follows the victim of his murder into the house of the victim's father. That, beloved, is astonishing. The murderer follows the victim into the house of the victim's father. That is the startling hospitality of God. It is done to bring you home. It is done to bring the ends of the earth home. It matters not what you've done. It matters not what you've been or who you've been. It doesn't matter even who you are. The very murderers of Jesus are embraced in this hospitality. Indeed, they have unknowingly created the ground for it. How could it not extend to you? How could it not extend to you? Receive the gift of God. Heed the invitation, the welcome, the offer from the crucified host, the great practitioner of divine hospitality. Then go forth and do likewise. For the Christian faith can be said to be this, the practice of the hospitality that we have received from Jesus, our crucified host. Amen. Amen. Amen.